Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with me down the road a ways is William Annis. Hello. And we have a uh, we we have no mic today, but we have a special guest with us that we're going to be talking to, uh, Britton Watkins. So Britton, uh, he's very involved in the the Natvi community, um, and also he was a uh, language consultant. Uh, I guess basically a dialect coach for Star Trek Into Darkness for Klingon. Yes. Yeah. And then, and he has also recently made a movie with his husband, Josh, called Sen. And we're, we'll, we'll talk about that. There's a, a conlang that's used throughout that movie. Actually, what, there's several of them. There are several conlangs in the movie. Yeah, so, uh, we'll be getting through all of that. So, uh, let's start out, uh, Britain. Uh, William wanted to start this out with talking about your, your Natlang background. So your, your background in natural languages that sort of leads into Conlanging too. Okay, sure. Um, I'm from a very small town in South Carolina where there was very little foreign language. I never heard any kind of non-English language spoken as I was growing up, but, um, moving from what at my school was middle school into the, the high school between seventh and eighth grade, I was exposed to Latin very briefly through some private lessons given to me by, by my grandmother's best friend, who was the only Latin teacher in the entire town. And she had just retired, actually. So uh, I was about to have Spanish as my first foreign language in the eighth grade, but I got a smattering of Latin before that, and the first thing I ever learned was Britannia Insula Est. <laughs> so, and that went right along with my name. So I figured there was something, you know, something in the cards there. That was the first sentence in the book that I had. So, mm-hmm. um, so I started with a smattering of Latin and then took Spanish for, uh, several years in high school and went to Spain for two summers. So actually became rather fluent, conversationally fluent in Spanish when I was in high school. And, um, then took a little bit of French in college. Uh, I think French 102 and that was it. And, um, primarily focused on Japanese in my, in my language schooling. At university, I spent a year at the University of Hawaii because of the East-West Center there and was able to study things like, you know, uh, bits about classical Japanese and Japanese linguistics and whatnot at the University of Hawaii that I could not get in South Carolina at the University of South Carolina where my primary education happened. So by the time I was out of school, uh, I had been relatively conversationally fluent in Spanish and was pretty good at everyday life in Japanese, but had never actually lived there and ended up being in Japan for um, five and a half years in my twenties and became fluent, professionally fluent in Japanese. And um, during a second stint back in Japan, in the late 90s, I actually began to learn Thai. So I did that, was doing that as a hobby. And my first instructors in Thai were bilingual in Japanese and Thai. So my 
I, le- I started learning Thai via Japanese, which was a little <laughs> strange. But um, it didn't really make any difference because, you know, it doesn't matter what you start with. You're trying to, to learn that target language. Um, and since then, I've dabbled in especially the orthography of uh, Tibetan, uh, Sanskrit. And of late, I'm quite interested in Cherokee. And I'm trying to learn Cherokee, but finding it very difficult for lots of different reasons. Um, so along the way, I also had two years of Mandarin. So a little bit of mainland Mandarin and a little bit of more, uh, Taiwan focused Mandarin, but some Mandarin too. So that's, that's kind of the Netlang background. So that's, that is a pretty wide and varied field that you have experience in. So lots of different types of languages. Yeah. When it comes to kind of topology and everything. Yeah, they're quite, um, you know, Thai, Thai and Chinese, Thai and Mandarin are similar to each other. French and Spanish are similar. Uh, when we get to not V, that's kind of similar to Japanese for me anyway. So, you know, so it, they all have a lot of kind of differences, but overlap too. Yeah. Yeah. You have sort of the two romance languages in there and, and, so you have sort of groups of languages that you've you've studied, uh, but that's that's a very good sort of starting point to have. I I wish I had that much sort of language experience when I was starting with conlang. Basically, I had I had only been studying Spanish in high school. Um, so let's get into conlanging a little bit. How how did you get into the sort of into conlangs in general, and then later into creating your own language? Okay. Um, I, of course, was aware of the existence of conlangs. I probably didn't call them conlangs, but I certainly knew about Esperanto, and I knew a little bit about its history, just because all language is interesting to me. It doesn't matter what it is. It's very, very interesting to me. I, I will admit that that scripts and orthographies are more interesting to me than spoken languages, but um, but only slightly more interesting. I really just love language in general. So I knew about Esperanto, and I actually have been a science fiction fan since I was a young child. So when the original Klingon Dictionary came out, when I was actually in Hawaii, at least the first time I saw it, I was in Hawaii studying Mandarin and Japanese and learning Kabuki and other crazy stuff like that. But um, I actually bought the, the Klingon dictionary and had it and read it and learned basically how the grammar worked and whatnot. And I certainly understood that that was a constructed language. So I knew about constructed languages conceptually and specifically Esperanto and Klingon, but I did not learn Klingon. I didn't learn to converse in it, and I did not become a part of the kind of pen pal group that originally emerged and then became the KLI online. Um, That was never really a lot of what I did. But I I did get very intensely interested in conlangs and the emergence of the conlang community online and whatnot because of the Natvi in avatar. And um, William will know that he and I met for the first time in the comments of uh, a thread on language log when Paul R. Frummer yep. first posted about the not language. He gave a very brief sketch of 
you know, the phonology and some of the some of the verbal stuff, not a lot of it, but um I think he but, I think he talked a little bit about uh attitude markers in that article, right? Probably, yeah, but from yeah, the verbal he mentioned stuff. Them. Mostly yeah. he triggered a lot of questions that didn't get answered till later. Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But that's where I met William originally in the in the comments, literally in the comments section of that. And those comments led me to LearnNavi.org, which is that was the the, you know, Alice's hole down which I fell, basically. <laughs> and um, kind of nothing has been the same since then. Did you I, I should, see the sorry. movie before? Did you see the movie before you got interested? Um, or did you hear something about the language before you saw the film? Um, the day before the film came out on that Thursday, uh, Josh yelled across the room at me, did, did you realize there's a constructed language in this Avatar movie that's coming out tomorrow? And I had been aware that James Cameron was making another film, but I had completely forgotten about it. I had heard about it like six months earlier, and I had, because of work and other things, I had just completely forgotten about it. So, And I had no idea there was a constructed language in it. But because of things that were actually already online the day before the movie came out, um, primarily a word list out of, um, a word list out of the, the, uh, book that is the kind of, was the seminal thing that kicked it all off the, um, the ASG. Yeah. Um, the, we, and, and I must give a lot of credit to the Wikipedia article that already existed on the language that, morning at 11.45 when I heard about it for the first time. I just went off and tried to learn as much as I could about the language with anything I could find. And Paul was on uh, NPR speaking a little bit and on the New York Times blog with a recording and this and that and the other. So I actually at about 4.30 that afternoon wrote a letter, a like letter, an email of like two lines or three lines in the most broken not be you can imagine to Paul. <laughs> and he responded while I was at a dinner party via email. So on my iPhone at 7.30 p.m. at a dinner party, Paul actually responded to me. And so that was that was how it all got started. And I did not actually see the film until the following Tuesday. Wow. So so I was involved with not be for four or five days before I ever saw the film. And probably wildly blogging and chatting away and engaging away on learnnotbeat.org before I ever saw the movie. I want to I want to roll back and just just sort of make an observation. I find it interesting that you and William uh have met in the comments of a blog post because that's just like so much of what what the conlang community is. I've only met like I think 3 conlangers in person. One of them I met before I ever knew he was interested in, in the conlanging. Um, and later formed the, the sort of online friendship. That's Mike. And mm -hmm. then William. And then there's a guy here, Matthew, who's, who's studying in the German department. So it really is mostly like an online interaction thing. Oh, I think the internet just, just radically transformed the nature of the conlanging community. I mean, it's enabled it essentially. Not that it didn't exist at all before, but it's really radically transformed the nature of 
the way people get to know each other and how relationships are formed. Well, yeah, and it's sort of created it because and right. a lot of niche communities have just been created online. So that's that's an interesting sort of uh, tidbit. And George, for you to have met three people is wildly inflated number. Many people have never met another Conlanger in person ever. Right, that's true. And I have lots of, you know, going back and forth with lots of other Conlangers that I, you know, I recognize their names now on Facebook and stuff, and I know who they are, but have never met them. It's sort of a, an interesting thing. So uh, let's get into a little bit. So you talked about uh, not V. You say you've you've also been involved with uh, Vulcan. Now that's yes, that's yes. Very interesting to me. Okay, well I can I can tell you about that. I mentioned earlier that I was kind of much more uh, well, not much more, but more drawn to to orthography than I am necessarily morphology and syntax and whatnot. So so I discovered by accident that there was already a fully fleshed out Vulcan language that had a lexicon of 10,000 plus items. And I discovered this in some kind of half-preserved remnant of the original website that that had language lessons for Golic Vulcan, which was created by a gentleman named Mark R. Gardner and his his group of friends and collaborators that went under the title originally and still do now again, I think, of the Vulcan Language Institute or the VLI. So they took uh, the actual lines that were spoken on screen in the original Star Trek motion picture film and then the next um, films that involve spoken Vulcan language through the third film. And oh, is uh, there, wait, is the, was there some in the original, the first movie? Yes, the there's a Vulcan master who that's where the the vast majority of all of it was spoken. The Vulcan master explains to Spock in in Vulcan in the final cut that he has failed to achieve Kolinar. He's failed to purge all of his emotion because he's distracted by his emotions and his attachment to the human beings calling him away to the expedition to discover V'ger. So there, at the beginning of that movie, there's actually about a minute and a half of the Vulcan master explaining to him why he's failed to achieve Kolinar. And, okay. and that was originally all filmed in English, of course, and then they went back and dubbed in uh, what became the phonological basis for Golic Vulcan anyway. Um, they dubbed it all in. So... Mark R. Gardner and the rest of the collaborators at the VLI turned that into a really amazingly fleshed out uh, language. So I I learned that language, not perfectly fluently well, of course, but well enough to feel comfortable in it and be able to to exchange emails with people in it. And, and then um, just came up with my own versions of a complete orthography that would represent that phonology, um, basing that on the non-grammatical, non-linguistic, but purely artistic examples of quote-unquote Vulcan writing that had showed up in all of the, the different series on the big screen and on television over all the years. So 
that's what my my interest in Vulcan centered around. So I'm at a point now that with a few other people, there are not very many people. Uh, certainly, there are probably more people who can communicate in Navi than in Golic Vulcan, of whom I'm aware. But uh, I do um, I do write to people, exchange emails with people completely in Golic Vulcan, and they're all, of course, fans of the Star Trek franchise. That's a that's a very interesting uh, sort of thing. I mean, especially since like Vulcan is not like Klingon. Klingon has a lot of the studio support behind it, and and Mark Okren is working with Klingon L- Language Institute people. Mm-hmm. But as far as I know, this this Vulcan, aside from the initial things he pulled from, is like a fan effort, like a like fan fiction in a way. Yes, it is, and. Um, it's a little, it's a little more complicated than that, even in that there's a mixture of things that Mark did for the big screen. Um, other people did for the big screen. In chatting with Mark about it, he's told me that not everything that was spoken on screen was necessarily something that he came up with. And then there are the writings of uh, different people who've explored the Vulcan culture, like Diane Duane and other other people who've come up with bits and pieces of Vulcan language over the years. So there were uh, like official Star Trek novels. Um, they're official novels, but again, that doesn't necessarily mean that Paramount or CBS or anybody is behind the coining of these terms or right. their meaning necessarily. So. There are a couple of words that come up commonly. For example, the most common one is tahila, and tahila means something like a very close, dear friend. And there's some question, I think, as to whether Gene Roddenberry actually coined that term or not. But um, but that word is it's hard to tell exactly where it came from. It certainly was not a word that was created by Mark Okrand, but it's very important to the the community. And there are other words like kait, which means something along the lines of what is, is. You know, it's this very Zen approach to existence. And that's not necessarily that was ever anything that was ever spoken on screen, but it's still very much a part of the culture of the people who have an affinity for Vulcans and their culture and language. So it's kind of a mix of lots of different things. But ultimately, yes, I would say that if you're doing anything Vulcan, um, you're likely to be doing so, operating in something that is essentially fan fiction. All right. Mm. Well, mm. do you have any other questions about the Vulcan before we move on to his work with uh, with Star Trek directly? Uh, sure. Um, one of the things. So you have a website, um, Corsaya.org, devoted to Gullet Vulcan and especially um, coming up with writing systems. Yes. For Gullet Vulcan, and. I recognize some of the sources. I always remember in the Enterprise series, um, to Paul reading a book that has something that looks an awful like one of the scripts you came up with. What was it like trying to take the work of designers who have no concept of language at all necessarily, mm-hmm. um, and t- extracting from that a usable writing system? Well, that's, um, there are actually three different writing systems. So the one that's most interesting and most popular is um, the one that some people call the musical writing system. That's the one that there was a graphic in the book that T'Pol was reading. Uh-huh. So that system um, 
originally came, I think, exclusively from Mike Okuda. And, you know, everyone's familiar with the term Okudagrams, probably, because he's done all this work in creating all kinds of graphic artworks. It's artwork that's decorated the various, you know, Federation ships, but also alien ships and whatnot. So if there was ever a, just a random alien writing system or something that showed up on screen, Michael Okuda probably had something to do with it. Um, okay. But I was, I basically just looked across all of those things with a kind of heuristic, um, artistic eye and then, and took, took that or used that as a guide. I didn't want to copy specifically the glyphs or what I might interpret as a glyph done by, done by Michael Okuda or anyone else who might have worked on assets for Enterprise or, or any of the other series. So I, I just kind of took a, an, an artistic average, if you will, of what people referred to as that musical notation or whatever, and thought about the actual phonology of Golic Vulcan, which was formalized again by Mark R. Gardner and the, the VLI, and just tried to come up with a working system that, that would make some kind of sense, but also looked really nice, because I think the original curly Q, you know, musical notation-esque writing always looked very nice and inspired people. So it was in some ways challenging, but it's just an alphabet, you know, like every, every, they're just consonants and vowels and some diacritic marks and whatnot. So it's not, it's not conceptually very complicated. It just looks very complicated because it was inspired by artwork that was originally designed to look complicated and beautiful as opposed to being, um, a practical tool for a spoken language. Yeah. Hmm. Um, that I would, I would imagine, like, if you were to actually try to take the art assets from, from Enterprise or from all of the series and try to reconcile those with Golic Vulcan, that would just not be possible because, you know, you have artists just sort of drawing random symbols. Mm-hmm. No, it would not be possible. It is not possible. I can tell you that yeah, it, it is not be, possible. You, you, you just see, it's just gibberish anyway. So, um, Moving along, so you moved from this sort of, you know, working in fandom to you actually worked as a language consultant with, uh, the movie Star Trek Into Darkness. There's a scene where, uh, Zoe Saldana playing, uh, uh, why Nyota. should I forget that name? Uhura. Uhura. Nyota with Uhura, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Playing Uhura has to talk to some Klingons in Klingon because, mm-hmm. you know, she's a linguist anyway. So what was, what was that like sort of working on the, the set? That seems like sort of what would be the ideal sort of situation for, for people interested in the things that we're, we're interested in. Well, it was, it was an amazing adventure. It really was. I was, I was hired basically, as you mentioned earlier, to be, a dialect coach to to teach the all of the actors Zoe and and the other Klingons who were expected to perform on camera um, to teach them their lines, which of course were all written by Mark Okren. I mean, he he does everything that's official for the films, of course. So I was hired simply because I was able to teach them the correct pronunciation, 
and be there as a live person in classes. I mean, we had sessions with them. I, I live in San Francisco, but I went down to Los Angeles um, on three or four different occasions to work with them just to get them comfortable saying all the lines and saying them in different ways so that when J.J. Abrams inevitably started directing them, they would have enough kind of comfortableness, uh, you know, enough um, general, not necessarily ability to speak the language, but general comfort with the lines and what the individual words meant so that they could act them as opposed to just saying them on camera. Um, and I, again, I went down, there was also some meeting via Skype actually to, to practice and then eventually I was on set on Kronos, and that set was amazing, I will tell you. I mean, it was <laughs> I, to me, it's more amazing than what actually you see in the film. I mean, it, it was amazing to be there on the set. But, um, but um, I, I was on set for about six days while they were filming everything that involved any kind of spoken Klingon. And some of that ended up in the film, and some of it ended up on the cutting room floor, as they say. So... Um, there was lots of different, lots of different stuff, and it was all fun and interesting. And they all did a great job. They really, really all did a great job of of approaching something with a phonology that unusual, and just diving right in and and having fun with it. We had lots of fun with it too. It wasn't a burdensome kind of oh my god, I have to speak Klingon on camera kind of thing. It was a lot of fun for me and for them. And Klingon is really not easy to speak. It's just, it's a little bit weird in, in a lot of ways. But so I, I remember watching that scene and they, I, I agree. They did do very well. You can judge like the accuracy better than I did, but I, that better than I can. But from what my perspective, they were very, very fluid in the, the delivery and were able to very successfully act through the Klingon. So, well, they did. Everybody who who learned anything did did an amazing job, and they did. They they were very believable to me. I was actually there with, you know, what are called cans earphones on, listening to the dialogue and watching the watching the scenes as they were performed. If I was not actually right there on set, standing off to the side somewhere. And they did a great job. They did an amazing job. And it is hard to learn. But one of the one of the actors who, you know, sadly for me, does not end up in the final film, is actually a speaker of Arabic, and he can pronounce Klingon better than I can. I'll tell you that. Um, oh, oh, yeah, because there's there's the the and the call call right. There's well, lots lots of stuff back in the throat that he yeah. he did an amazing job with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope that uh, Zoe Saldana doesn't get typecast. Of we need someone to speak to aliens, <laughs> right? She's she was in in Avatar, and then she did this. She's going to be back she's in gonna, right, Avatar yeah. again. Yeah, yeah she she's going she's going to turn into one of the grand ladies of science fiction if she keeps keeps going this way. She's she was Neytiri in in the first Avatar, and I looked at her IMDb, and apparently they have. I don't know if they've actually confirmed it or if this is just something somebody added, but they added like two, three, and four for Avatar. She, that was confirmed last week. Oh, yeah, she's yeah, she's signed for all the additional movies. Yeah, 
So that's that's going to be interesting. She's going back to her nutty roots. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but she she really is. I mean, she just she I think she really likes doing it though. I mean, I don't she she certainly had a very open attitude and a wonderful approach to to tackling it. You know, she was fearless about it and and I think that's kind of half how you have to be with Klingon because it's just so different. It's it's not easily relatable to any other language that anybody speaks. So I yeah. I really appreciated her open attitude. She was very go getter about it. It's interesting that you talk about you have to be fearless to do this, and I think that's really true because I just remember the first time I ever studied a foreign language in high school was French. And right off the bat, we're supposed to say, instead of saying we're here for attendance, we're supposed to speak in French. And I honestly felt a little embarrassed. Yeah. It's like, I'm yeah. speaking gibberish. Yeah. Well, I always feel a little embarrassed when I start speaking in a new language. I remember very well, you know, needing to say things out loud in class in Thai for the first time. And, and, you know, even now, it's my grasp of Cherokee is so poor that I feel incredibly self-conscious every time I say anything like, you know, my name is or anything like that. I just still feel incredibly self-conscious about it. But I think that's just a part of the the process. And you have to push through that and get through that. And then once you do that and you get to the stage that you can repeat things very, very comfortably, regardless of what you're doing in your day then you're better. And then the more of those phrases and the more of that command you add, the better you feel about it. But again, when you're learning a constructed language for a film, you don't, you're never going to have all of that. You're only going to have whatever your lines are. So um, that's a, you know, that's another special layer of complexity and challenge, I think, because you're not actually learning to say things like I'm here or my name is you're all of a sudden you're talking about an intergalactic terrorist, you know? Right. So, <laughs> so, so it's a little, it's a, a different level of that, I think. Yeah. And I feel like sort of the most successful actors doing that sort of thing are people who are like really excited by the, the, the prospect of speaking a different language that's at least that's what I get from, you know, promotions and, and from hearing about it. Uh, everyone, ha it, it seems apparent that like in Game of Thrones, Jason Momoa was like really into learning, you know, learning his Dothraki lines and delivering them very well. Things like that. So I think it's, I, I think you need a certain enthusiasm. You need a certain enthusiasm to act a character. Well, unless you're uh, Sir Alec Guinness. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's an enthusiasm, but it's also a bravery, you know? Like, it really is a certain type of bravery that's necessary. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Now, talking about, since we're on Conlangs in Movies, anyway, and... I want to ask a leading question. One, okay. So, we're about to talk about this movie that you and Josh made. Mm -hmm. Did you try your hand at language invention between getting into not V and et cetera mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. making this movie? Um, I would say I dabbled a little bit here and there. So, um, cause there's, there's one thing we've really talked about from time to time on the show in the past is there is a world of difference between 
being the fan of Klingons or the Na'vi and trying to learn the language as part of that fandom or as identifying with those fictional cultures in some way, right? For the most part, the Klingons do not talk to the rest of the common world. Right. Yeah. Right. So making that jump is what I'm asking about here. Well, I, you know, of course I've been very involved in, in the standard kind of group procedure for those of us who engage in expanding not be. Sure. So I've been thinking very intent, intensely and very kind of focused in a very focused kind of way about. So, uh, we had to, we had, uh, some technical difficulties. We're coming, just coming back from a little outage. So, Written, you were explaining, like, uh, what sort of conlanging stuff you had done before you started doing Sin. Yes. So, I, I dabbled a little bit in some conlanging before Sin. Of course, uh, the process of learning Gullic Vulcan involved some awareness of conlanging things as well, but, um, but basically, the, the most experience I had was working with the other people who've been involved now for several years in the group effort to expand Na'vi. So there's a lot of thinking about Na'vi culture. There's a lot of thinking about um, uh, appropriateness of concepts to culture and uh, the way that vocabulary may or may not be formed or constructed or built or expanded based on that. So I, I think the the vast majority of my experience came from specifically from that experience with what we call the uh, language expansion program, uh, the, the LEP, as it's commonly called in the, the Navi community. Uh, but I also thought about uh, things like what, what might uh, – vampiric language involve? What might be the cultural aspects related to a language in which the people live for several hundred or several thousand years and they have very complicated social hierarchies? Um, what might be the complexities in a pronoun system when two vampires are talking to each other versus a vampire talking to a familiar? Um, so I've thought about all kinds of different ways that a language might be interesting and appropriate to its cultural context. Um, but the primary language in Sin is actually just written. So we, of course, use the conceit that the audience is hearing uh, the language, the native language that the actors are speaking in their own culture, when in fact they are hearing English, because that is convenient for the audience and convenient for the filmmakers. There's really no way that we could have had the entire cast uh, speak in a constructed language a la Incubus, you know. <laughs> we were not shooting for that. Um, but we did write the language consistently, visually, everywhere that there would normally be some other language written in the film. And that is all grammatically correct. And eventually, when we're able to release the film uh, through video on demand or some kind of other media, you will also be able to hear some of the scenes that we actually filmed with the actors speaking uh, in the language as opposed to speaking English. So we did this for the bonus features of the film. And I did want everything to be as grammatically correct as possible. I'm sure some errors slipped in here and there. And 
I'm willing to forgive myself for all of that. But uh, <laughs> there are some relatively complex passages where pages in a book are printed. There's an actual story there about an insect, and the protagonist is reading it, and that's actually grammatically correct language in in I think all cases, maybe just most cases. But anyway, I I put a lot of effort into coming up with something that made sense for for that that culture. Now, again, their culture, as seen in the trailer and any other way that you see it, is not radically different from our culture. But there are certain aspects of the nature of the political situation and the social hierarchies that mean that some things are quite different. Some concepts that they might have for things might be very, very different from ours in a democratic society, for example. So uh, I did try to, to make the language, even though it's written and not spoken in the primary film, true to the world. And there are two other fragments of language spoken at the beginning and end of the movie that are actually the dialect of the corporation that is the the original body that actually technically owns the planet on which the protagonist sen lives and then there is one other um very short scene in which another alien culture foreign to sen and everyone else in the movie um is shown on camera briefly and there are a couple of lines of dialogue in that and that was a, again a different language that was not so much a language it's just more what i think of as like a sound palette it was just um enough volume of syllables in something that sounded reasonable um to not really need a full grammar or anything behind it because it was never designed to be that it was simply designed to be a fragment of language that you heard yeah. um, there's a tiny bit of grammar in that in that there's a vocative so there is a consistency in when the the characters are talking to each other there is a vocative marking on their names but otherwise um it's actually not grammatical but it it's simply there to fill in um the need for some meaning in the subtitles Yeah and uh you actually gave us um uh sort of privately a cut of that of of those scenes uh I guess I can't splice those into the episode right now can I <laughs> Um you could uh you could spl oh sure you could splice in the audio if you wanted to absolutely Yeah sure okay so I will uh stick those in it's uh first is the like the intro bit and mm -hmm. you'll see like it'll it'll be start out in in the 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 corporation's language and then have voiceover in English and then there's a second scene that's entirely in this these these aliens language right yes uh, correct so uh that would be right here The final item on our agenda today is the planetary asset known as Pyong. This remote backwater was acquired over 800 years ago. Tonight, 
So there are also songs in the movie mm-hmm. that are. Which language are those in? Those songs are in the language that Sin would speak if you okay. heard him speaking his native tongue, and um, they are grammatically correct and they are specifically written to the context of the scenes that are happening there. So um, one of them, the first one. Is actually the translation into Sinyamda. Sinyamda is the the name of the language that you see written all over the movie, and it literally means written language. <laughs>、um, it's not what necessarily Sen and his his girlfriend Kana would call their own language, but that's what I refer to it as because it is in the film. Ninety five percent of the film just a a written language, so I call it written language, and that's what Sinyamda means in their language.、Um, Or to them, it would literally mean writing.、Mm-hmm. So the name of the language is writing.、Um, and what is like the 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 sort of inspiration for that writing system? It's very interesting to me. I'm not. It's not like something I've seen before. So, well, it's a it's an amal it's an al it's an alphabet, and it's an amalgamation of systematic things from a couple of different languages. It's kind of like an abugida. In that all of the、um, all of the vowels are kind of diacritics, and they're all they all appear beneath their consonants. So everything that's on the main line is a consonant, and everything below、uh, that's a descender is、uh, a vowel. And、uh, in that sense, it's somewhat somewhat like Korean as well, because it is vowels, and none of the consonants have an inherent Uh, vocalic value like a nabugida, but it's also different in that unlike Korean, it doesn't clump together in blocks. For example, sometimes it does, but that's only they look like blocks. But that's only because you're dealing with a two syllable word. So you know, you've got CV CV. So that, that that ends up looking like a kind of Chinese character or a Korean block. But that's coincidental. There are also、mm-hmm. long longer words like the word sinyamda, for example. Would look like a long, written, much more like an English word written out. It would have horizontal length to it. So, it's really kind of、um, arbitrary as to whether a word looks more Asian or looks more non-Asian because of this square having squareness or not having squareness. And I just basically wanted to take the pieces and parts that could be from any orthography and and use them in a way so that. You instantly, without thinking about it, recognized it as writing, but in an egalitarian fashion, there would be no favoritism over someone who is a native speaker, or reader, writer of Korean versus Arabic versus Russian versus English versus Burmese. You know, no, no one has any kind of advantage. the The language on the screen is equally mysterious to absolutely everyone who watches the film, with no prejudice. Towards or bias in any way, so that was my ultimate goal with the way the the system looked. A, it should look like writing to anyone who sees it, and B, nobody should be able to read it.、Yeah. How long did it take you to、uh, work that out? Um, I, I should mention we... for, for for people quickly. There's a、uh, you talked about this and the design process for fonts, sort of in general,、mm-hmm. but you use、um, Sinyamda as an example. Um, for a talk for the most recent LCC, right back yeah, in Austin. I, I just, I just was looking that up. That's a very、uh, sorry to talk over you. I'll let you, I'll, <laughs> I'll let you go. 
Oh no, I'm um the process of coming up with how the phonolo- with the how it was going to map to the phonology and whatnot was I don't know a couple matter of days or something, but I did create um, two fully functional fonts, one Gothic and one Roman font. Um, by Gothic, I mean something that's sans serif, mm-hmm. and um, and they're bold and non-bold versions of that. And I did that because we created just everything on screen that you see that has any writing on it is in Sinyamda. There's no Roman alphabet at all, unless there's a mistake. I mean, there may be a continuity error here or there somewhere we didn't catch something, but there's not supposed to be any writing that's not Sinyamda on screen. And that involved even digitally replacing things that were cast metal parts a hundred years old from like plumbing and stuff like that. You know, like <laughs> there, um, several of the things that you see on screen were actually these ancient mysterious machines that we found, um, on Cockatoo Island in the middle of Sydney Harbor. We happened to be there on vacation. So we spent a day shooting there and wherever there was any kind of Roman writing, we replaced it with Sinyamda and, um, so we needed a way to do that as quickly as possible. And that ultimately meant that it was quicker for me to make fonts for several of the typefaces. I don't know. There are probably six or seven different typefaces that appear in the movie, maybe even eight or nine. And some of those are are based on fonts, and then some of them are one-offs. That I, I created the outlines, and I could still turn those things into fonts, but I haven't done it yet because of all the work involved in making a font. Right, so. Right. Um, but yeah, we treated it as if it were a working language, so there would be all kinds of different stylistic variations, as opposed to, oh, there's one set of glyphs and that is the only way to write the language. I don't know of any real human language that works that way. Right, um, right. So even now for Cherokee, for example, there are all kinds of really talented people who are taking Sequoia's original designs and doing all kinds of fantastic things with Cherokee typography, and it's wonderful. Um has anyone come up with a skinny font yet for uh, Cherokee, since those are all the rage now in design? There's some pretty skinny ones yet. I don't know quite as skinny as the typography we use for the titling and sin. I don't. I haven't uh-huh. seen anything quite that skinny, but it's only a matter of time. <laughs> yes, that's true. And so how, how did you go about um, designing the language? And I don't mean this from, you know, the poor Conlanger concept. I mean, from a process, did you have the script before the language, so you sort of work the language around the script, or did you go off and try to get something first, and then go... Testing, one, two, three, testing. Okay, so, we're back again after another dropped call. Yay, Skype. Okay. So, I was just asking how, Britain, how you approached this balance, because especially for coming up with languages for movies and TV, there's a question of how you progress. Do you come up with a language first... And then you get the dialogue and then you go with it. But I'm guessing you might have had a lot of the dialogue settled before you even started. So you might have worked toward the dialogue. Um, yeah, it's not really dialogue so much, but just, yeah, everything that needed to be visual on screen. So, um, we, we had, um, for example, I'll just take the posters. For example, we use several posters because that was an inexpensive way and a flexible way to create environments that look like they might be real mm-hmm. and um so josh would decide as the director would decide usually josh would decide what he wanted the posters to say in english and i would then start translating them and 
I already had a full phonology. And one of the things that I do in my conline process is that I go and I create all possible syllables in the language um, using spreadsheets, using Excel. So I, I know by looking through lists what, what I can have and what I cannot have. And one of the features of the language is that the verbs, like Cherokee, are still quite polysynthetic. And a lot of the nouns, even the common use nouns in the language, are formed off of verbal constructs. So I have a subset of legitimate syllables that are all um, listed on a sheet specifically for verbal roots. So looking at um, looking at what the translation needs to say, looking at I would actually type it out and see what it looked like. So there are many cases. Um, this is probably conlanging heresy, but <laughs> there there are many cases in which I actually decided what the root was going to be because one thing looked better than another one, you know, and it ultimately was more important for the film what everything looked like than it was what it sounded like. Because again, unlike Dothraki or Navi or Klingon, I don't expect this to be a language that a large number of people learn to use for everyday communication. So all of the roots are completely viable and they're completely okay. But if something looked better with a G and a Z in it, instead of an S and an L in it, then I might've chosen G and Z over SNL, for example. Mm-hmm. So so that was part of the process is incredibly artificial um, in terms of creating a constructed language that's similar to a natural language. But again, it's all fully pronounceable and all, you know, grammatically correct. But the way a word was going to look visually very much influenced in many cases the word that I chose it to be phonologically. I know that's incredibly strange, but that's actually what happened. I suspect plenty of conlingers work that way, even if they're working with the Latin alphabet. I have, who knows why, I have a strong aversion to the letter K. Uh-huh. I use plenty of languages with it, but if I could get away with using C like Tolkien did, I probably would. Mm-hmm. So, so I think there are other people who also... Um, not consider not just sound, but how the word looks on the page. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's that unusual. Yeah, it was kind of unusual in this case, though, in that because I don't know any of my letters in the same way that you know K, mm-hmm. um, I did. I had to type them out first to see what they were going to look like. And it's really because of the way the vowels descend from the consonants, these really interesting looking words end up appearing. And again, because my familiarity with my consonants and vowels are not as familiar as, as you or I would be with K, for example, I can't really see it in my mind or I couldn't at the beginning of the process, I should say now I can kind of imagine what any word looks like. And I might, without ever typing it out on the keyboard, I might just reject it. But at the beginning Mm -hmm. I had to type them out and see what they look like. And if they were going to fit really well on a poster in the place that we had to put them, then sometimes that's what I went with. And I, you know, I kind of guiltlessly did that. <laughs> so how like, how big is Sinyamda at this point? How much vocabulary could, uh, could, could, you know, if some data leaked out like it did for Notvi, how quickly could people start writing letters to you asking for more words? Oh, 
Well, they probably could. I mean, we've had enough different scenarios with things like the, you know, all the different things on the posters and, and specifically the translations that were done for the book, you know, because right. there were a couple of pages of text that had to under scrutiny stand up. Um, I ended up creating so far, I don't know, maybe I actually haven't counted. I really don't know exactly, but I, I think they're probably at least three or 400 words in the okay. lexicon. Um, and there may be a lot more than that. I just, because they accrete, you know, over time, you start sure, to think, sure. oh, this would be a good, and even if it's not necessary for the movie, now I go add things in there. Um, when you but, release the DVD for this movie, you should have like a, an extras booklet included with it with, with translations. Well, I've already started, um, a PDF of the, of the kind of, you know, the overview of the language, something that would be interesting to the conlanging community. I don't think anybody else would care about reading it, but, um, but I've already started doing that, but it's, I worked on it on airplanes to and from Australia and whatnot, and I haven't had a lot of time to work on it otherwise. So it's kind of on hold right now, but, um, we, I will definitely put things about the alphabet. There's even a kind of step-by-step, uh, stroke tutorial for how to write all the letters that'll go in the bonus features. And, um, there, one of the things that we will probably do, although we haven't figured out technically exactly how to do it yet, is, you know how you can turn on closed captioning? Well, we hope to be able to turn on closed captioning for all the, all the posters and all the labels and tags and other things that people see on the screen so that um so that you will be able to watch the movie with all of the posters telling you what they say oh that's um, fun yeah so you would you wouldn't be able to hear it but you would be able to see written in english or or theoretically other languages too um what the posters say and what the t-shirts say and what the what the what the book title says and all those other kind of things. I mean, we certainly won't, you know, we probably actually won't give the full translation of what's written in the book because that might end up being something else at a different time in the future. But, um, yeah, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we've thought about doing that. I think it would be a lot of fun and that would be fun for everybody. Not even, con- you know, not just conlang people, but everybody. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if I have any other questions. George, do you have anything? Uh, no, not, not generally. I think that's a pretty good. I think, uh, just to wrap us up a little bit, uh, why don't you, Britain, sort of tell us sort of where people can find out about Sin? And I know that it's sort of like limited release right now in, in film festivals and such. Yes. Do you know, do you have any distribution plans that you can share or? Well, we don't have any specific distribution plan. We are exclusively in film festivals and film festival like venues. So, so for example, we've uh, submitted the film to a couple of cons, for example. Um, so it's possible that you might be able to see it at a con, if not at a specific film festival. Um, but looking at the way the film festival circuit tends to, to work, I think it's likely that probably the earliest we would be able to release the film on video on demand or uh, via media like DVD or Blu-ray or anything like that would likely be the, the fall uh, of this year, 2014. Um, and we don't know how that will happen yet. We just don't know whether that might be through a distributor or whether we'll self-release or 
Maybe there'll be a brief theatrical run and then there'll be a release. We just don't know. There are lots of question marks. But for the time being, uh, anyone can go to senition.com. The website is S-E-N-N-I-T-I-O-N.com. And give us an email address and we'll put you on the mailing list. Or you could go like us on Facebook. And that's facebook.com slash senition. Again, the word is senition. S-E-N-N-I-T-I-O-N. And the explanation for what senition actually means is something that you really need to watch the movie first before you'd understand it. So um, we'll just, for the time being, ask you to type in those extra few letters to make <laughs> it to those URLs. And, okay. um, and you can find out everything that we know about it is we tend to post there. So that's basically this, whatever the status is, that's where it is. Okay, and we'll have those links in the show notes as well. So yeah, you can you can visit the show notes for this episode and uh, get all the 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 links that you need need to uh, to get to that. So uh, if there's nothing else, then I think we can wrap up the show. Wonderful! It's been a delight. Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, thank yeah, you. thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the uh, Simeonda lessons. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, guys. All right. Thank you, Britton. Uh, and happy conlanging. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can send questions, comments, or topic or featured language suggestions to conlangery at gmail.com. To submit a conlang or natlang greeting for the top of the show, see our contribute page for details. Web space for Conlangery is provided by the Language Creation Society, and our theme music is by Null Device. focus kind of way about what it means Hello. to have a language uh, Britain, match you're up, up with the culture, second, like the Nambi's culture, to the extent that we understand it. Uh, so no, no, that's no, a big... Hold on, hold on. Can, can, okay. William, can you hear Britain? Hello? Hello? Can I, can, is, can anyone hear me? Stop. All right. So that was an adventure. <laughs> uh, let me turn my microphone back up, and uh, we can get back on with the show. Yeah, George, what was the last thing you got recorded?